love sushi, I love Japan. My social life has hit the fan. All I have is anime, so I guess there's just one thing to say. Guru Gamesh, my life's a mess. My figure collection is racking up debt. My wife has left, my house is gone. Time to get my butt to Sakura Con. Guru Gamesh. Welcome to the Gurugamesh podcast, the only in one place for anime discussion on the internet, don't question that. I am the host of most of his marbles, Jay, and today we are discussing um, the tale of Earthsea's adaptation by uh, Miyazaki. See, we're doing another Miyazaki movie, guys, you know, we thought it may be a little, little bit soon, but you know, you can never get too much of a good old Miyazaki movie. I didn't know he did this one. People don't talk about this one as one of the great Miyazaki classics, but you know, I saw his name on the credits. There he was, Miyazaki. I had a stroke beforehand, so I didn't see his first name, but I assumed it was Hayao. Why is the room very silent? <laughs> Have I said something wrong? I don't well. think you're the only one who thought it would be Hayao Miyazaki, and was subsequently very disappointed to discover that it was not Hayao, and was in fact a film by Goro Miyazaki, the son of Hayao Miyazaki. Earthsea is a weird fucking film, because it, it, it... We all watched it two weeks ago, and we've yes. been off-putting this episode ever since because no one wanted to talk about the definitive 5.7 out of 10 experience. Well, so this is the part where uh, opinions differ here, because me and Gabe did think there was something interesting to talk about that. Well, so did I, but I just slowly grew more cynical because I'm the person who has to edit this fucking show. I mean, it, it's not the worst Surface or the worst Surface It's not the worst Ghibli film because Earwig and the Witch exists. Think, hey, uh, excuse me, it's also not even the worst Earthseas film. Well, adaptation. There's yes, a miniseries. Yes, just a sci-fi series. It's a sci-fi channel, oh, I think so. Uh, yeah, it was a sci-fi channel original miniseries, and it was... Terrible. Uh, I actually... Did it feature more or less black people than the anime? <laughs> really? <laughs> Unless you want to count the like weird dragon thing, I'm pretty sure it was fewer. Um, I can't lie, I was zoning in and out, so I might have missed one if, if it popped by. Um, because it was truly a shit film. And to be honest with you, the characters looked even whiter than the ones in the Ghibli movie, so I'm going to say, yeah, fewer. You sure you weren't watching Aragon? Honestly, I thought that. For the first, like, two minutes, I thought that. Another film about dragons that was released in 2006 to middling critical reception. Ah, Aragon's gonna be flashbacks. Anyway, we're here to talk about Earthsea, the Ghibli film, not the sci-fi series. Though I kind of just want to watch a sci-fi series like this. It sounds weird. So, Tales of Rome Earthsea. We all have faults on it. Jay, substantially less than myself and Victor. Well, it's not that Jay doesn't have any. Just Jay's just so numbed out by the whole thing because of how middling it was. Jay was like, let me tell you how this film begins. Crashing waves, desolate, decimating lightning storms. A boat is coming in. A sage is predicting the end of the world. Two dragons are fighting. And, and I was sitting there thinking, huh. Perhaps this this film is underrated. Perhaps this film is an untold classic of 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 proportions that are equal in scope to the most sort of epic Miyazaki film. <laughs> yep. Uh, apparently, I should have phoned a friend for that particular question because the rest of the movie does not acknowledge that beginning. As far as I'm aware, that was a short film that someone snuck in, and the rest of it is about someone stabbing his dad and then living in Devon, and also slavery exists. So, Vic, what the fuck was this film? <laughs> oh, God, this film was such a weird, weird 
Because oh. it's so slow and somber. Yeah, in a way joyless. But in that sort of, with that idea, it's the perfect film for Goro Miyazaki to make his debut because it's about someone killing his dad for no explained reason and then finding other people that he likes significantly better. Literally something Goro has done in almost every film. Uh, but we'll leave the Goro part to later on in the podcast because we have a lot to say about that. So you um, two have really taken the research lead. Like in terms of the original Earthsea's books, I have like, I mean, I'm three or four hours into one of them. I don't know much about the universe. Yeah. Gabe? Earthsea is a fantasy novel series. Started in the late sixties, I believe, like nineteen sixty-eight, with a wizard from Earthsea, and it—it's quite a seminal classic within the genre of fantasy literature because it creates this alternative style of fantasy to the generic Tolkien Middle Earth style fantasy that was set up in the fifties, and that a lot of fantasy series really model themselves on. Earthsea is very diverse, not specifically in terms of like different fantasy races but more in terms of people lots of different skin, skin cultures lots of the, lots of different skin cultures lots of different skin, skin colors lots of different cultures lots of different people lots of different ways of living ways different languages it's a series that is built around people unifying over what makes them human rather than the differences that separate them and it is intentionally meant to be just completely of its own world of its own beauty it's a very very different style of fantasy and i really appreciate it and for a long time it took it just was not getting adapted specifically because ursula Guin, the author was not interested in having her work adapted because she didn't think anyone could do it justice earth takes a long time a very long time to get to any kind of film as we've mentioned there is the sci-fi miniseries which i think was this in the 90s or? This was like late 90s, early 2000s, I think. Oh, that's prime sci-fi time, baby. I mean, I mean it, was, it was using practical effects, but they were bad. Or at least that's what I, uh, I, what I, what I remember. Again, this is also a movie I can't, this is also a miniseries I can't remember very well because m- much, <laughs> it was bad. It was bad, okay? It was really bad. Like, Earthseas was boring, this was bad, but not fun bad, it was just bad. Um, yeah, so I, I don't want to comment too much on that, especially when we've got the actual movie to comment on. But here's the thing, with that in mind, because often, like, as much as my- I have to make, like, an Alan Moore joke every episode now, because it's our quota, but Watchmen was called the unadaptable graphic novel. But what I'm fascinated by is that- from a Western perspective, cartoons are rarely considered for adaptation of fantasy and science fiction. Yes. When in reality, they are the best fucking medium yeah. to do them in. The in the early eighties, I believe, there's rumors about it. I when I was doing my research, I saw people pointing towards this happening in the eighties and pointing towards this happening in the nineties. But at some point, well, that's quite appropriate considering uh, fucking Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings animated film was also in that time. And considering I, that could have worked, I mean, it probably would have also been significant cut down oh yeah like i have a lot of personal feeling for that film because i grew up on it but it's the same principle of animation wasn't really considered to be a worthy medium of adaptation for more highbrow serious literature yes so miyazaki approached leguin uh hiel miyazaki the adult miyazaki approached leguin at some point in the 80s and 90s with the proposal of doing a animated anime adaptation of the earth of the first earthsea book um, and she turned it down because at the time, the only animation that she really had experience with was Disney. 
Yeah. And you see Disney is very childish, very fantastical. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. No, don't worry. It's okay. There's this scene where a wolf princess like sucks the blood out of a wolf. And and there's there's also like a, a, a weird uh, Keith David pig that like dies and everyone gets beheaded. Why are you walking away? I didn't know where that was going, but I like that end. Here's the, here's the here's the thing. My Alan Moore kind of turned into like whenever I do impressions of anime figures, it's all it's always like either sort of very British or very sort of New York kind of kind of guys. Because if I did a Japanese accent. I'd, I'd be thrown off my fucking apartment building. That's quite fascinating considering if this is the early 90s, then this was uh, pre-Weinstein uh, trying to make money out of Ghibli and pre-all of the Miramax acquisitions. And uh, This happened post. So the reason why I know um, that uh, because Miyazaki is... Uh, Miyazaki, I believe, was actually in production of... Howl's Moving Castle. Ah, interesting. So it would have yeah. been post-97. Yeah. No, no, no. What, what I mean is the um, Laguine actually finally saw the movies. Um, and then she was like, oh, shit, this guy's really fucking good. I need... Okay, if there's a person that can do it, it's Miyazaki. And uh, then Miyazaki, being still making Howl's Moving Castle, turns around and goes, uh, still tries to meet up with Laguine to, and they do agree to do it. But Laguine wanted Miyazaki to do it, but Miyazaki couldn't, Howl, obviously. So, there, but there was an agreement made that because Miyazaki would be involved in the process... So he would be supervising it to a degree. Yes. Uh, she would let it... Uh, she, she would be fine. We're flooding a go forward... Goro Miyazaki as director in his directorial debut, and in fact, his debut in the animation industry. So I imagine he he's ever since he was a young boy, all he, all he wanted to do was animation, following the father's footsteps, right? About this was his dream project. But we're going to talk about the results before we talk about the pre-production. Gabe, what do you think of... The actual movie. I'm going to give a little bit of a defense of this movie. It's not as bad or as awful as everyone points out to be. Oh, no, it isn't. It's fine. That's its biggest crime. Yeah, it's fine. There's lots of really beautiful art. There's some really neat ideas. I love the construction of the world, especially in those early scenes where they're going through the town. Now, the first 45 minutes of the film are the best part. Yeah, there's loads of really good design options. There's some interesting short choices. The simplified character designs, which may be a, a, a simple of Goro's amateur directing skills, but they also sort of reminded me of the Nino Kuni games. Yeah. The art director in this movie is Tashishiga Yuji, who worked as art director on quite a few of Ghibli's significant mm. films, including Spirited Away and Hall's Moving Castles right before this. So there is a lineage of the look of Ghibli films that Tales of Earthsea really does encapsulate and is a very beautiful example of. But I think that's just kind of in the art. The actual animation doesn't really do much that's interesting. The writing is extremely lopsided because there's certain scenes where the writing seems to work very well and it's very interesting and fun. Um, there's a particular scene that I really like of just two 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 old ladies very much in that like old gossipy Japanese lady like housewife style. And they just have a little bit of a gaff for five minutes and they're the fucking highlight of the movie for me. The story is... So this 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 is where... Because uh, this is where your perspective is actually quite unique in that you're one of the... Um, you're the only people... Or you're the only person I know who's actually read 
at least some of the original Earthsea's books. So uh, what this film does, and this is where the story gets, uh, my issues with it come in, is that this film, rather than being a direct adaptation of one of the Earthsea books or all of them, it decides to cherry pick particular elements from each of the books and try and make something new out of them, which is which sometimes can work quite well comic book movies do it endlessly Mm. where they'll just cherry pick major things from major story arcs and mesh them together into stories that usually work quite well but uh, this is where Ursula Le Guin had quite a bit of the problem with the film as well is that the things that are being cherry picked and smushed together they're all very specifically of their story they have very particular reasons for being there and very particular thematic significant reasons for why they're a part of that particular story. Gabe, are you trying to suggest that this film is a mess of themes and character progression? Uh, Yeah, yeah, I am. That's exactly what I'm suggesting. I am shocked and awed, is what I would say if we lived in fucking Bizarro World. Now, the writing on this film was done by Goro Miyazaki. And his writing partner. Who is called Niwa Keiko. This is also her first credit on animation, as far as I can find. And also, also his co-writer on... Pretty much all of his films. films. No, 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 like, uh, yeah, yeah, like, up from Poppy Hill, but she's also done independent stuff. I, I believe she's also... She might be, I uh, might be mistaken, she might be... She's an editor by trade, trade. That's, that's the thing. thing. Uh, no, but basically, she's actually the person that mentored... Goro. We'll get into that later. Yep. But uh, yeah, she's also, also known for stuff like when Marnie was here, like yes. you know, working on a lot of stuff that's very clever. Ah, yes, a woman had something to do with this because, which is wonderful, and you can you can see that with some of the female characters in this film. But all two of them. All yes, all two of them. All of the characters in this film are just flat. They're just really flat. There is not much characterization going on here. Uh, they not very few of them feel like they have motivations or any kind of desire to actually do anything at all. All of the story in this movie is just kind of driven by things just kind of happen. They just kind of happen. There doesn't seem to be any buildup. There's no kind of there's conflict, but the conflict doesn't feel very personal. It all feels very detached. It all feels as if the characters are there and they're all going through the going through the motions, but there's no emotion behind those motions. This feels like a Gaiden sidequel pre-sequel to something that's had like a vast amount of info put into yeah. it. I feel like I'm following a bunch of side characters from a much bigger narrative. I'd say it feels like a very poor attempt to summarize the key themes of that bigger world. And what the fuck are they? Because God knows I kill your dad and work on a farm. You'll feel better. So here's what I've read. I've, um, because obviously I haven't read the books. I didn't have enough time to read the books, but I have read other people's interpretations about it. And, um, I've looked online just to find what other people thought who actually had a more holistic interpretation. And they said, and if I'm being super charitable, they looked at it more like a, a casserole of all the different... That's a really good description, yep. Yeah. And it's like, oh, here's... Oh, this is a good idea. Let's throw this in. Or like, oh, this looks cool. Yeah, chuck that in as well. Yeah, it's like some of the bits of all the shit that was in all the books, um, and they were thrown all together. And that is not really a good recipe for a good story because you're not putting things in there for a reason. You're just... Kind yeah. of chucking them in because it seems like it's a good idea. I was going to say, considering I'm only three or four hours into the first Earthsea's book, which very much focuses on the character of Sparrowhawk when he was a youngin. Yep. He's a he's a he's a sort of he's a weird old Obi Wan Kenobi Timothy Dalton man in this, and that's quite confusing. 
and there's also just a bunch of yeah. It so, takes from the first and the third books specifically, right? And bits from the fourth as well. Okay. There's references to book two, um, but it's the, that reference literally amounts to a throwaway line about the tombs of Atuan. So imagine if someone did an animated film where they took the Phantom Menace, Revenge of the Sith, A New Hope. And bits of the Clone Wars animated series. Nope, that could be coherent. That could be coherent. In, co- in comparison to Earthsea, that could be coherent. Um, from what I understand about Earthsea, Earthsea's like crazy shit. This is, co- this is like including Silmarillion with like Lord of the Rings stuff. From my experience of the Earthsea books, they're not that dense. They're not as dense as Tolkien. A lot of them are in for children. I was going to say, like, this, the first book by Audible standards is only about seven, eight hours, which yeah. is mercifully short. The beauty of the Earthsea books doesn't necessarily come from the depth of the world building, although it absolutely is I there. didn't mean in terms of depth. What I was referring to is more that the, um, compa- like, there seems to be coherent threads either in Star Wars or in... Like Lucas famously once said, although it doesn't repeat, it rhymes. It's a poem. The beauty of the UFC novels is very much in its... Like, protagonists change literal different protagonists in books. This is true, but it's more in the kind of themes that it explores. It's very heavily influenced by the Chinese philosophy of Taoism, which is very much your sort of, you know... Everything kind of flows. It's like a river. Think of the the famous Bruce Lee quote, be like water. Yeah. Life just flows. Things just flow by. There's no, sometimes there's a storm. Sometimes things are very calm. But ultimately, you're all just kind of riding along on this wave of life. Yeah. And it's kind of just Um, bobbing up and down. Which kind of neatly brings us into how they did the movie itself. Uh, because this is more of a point that you brought up after we were chatting about the film once we'd all watched it. There is no... The way they've done this movie... Well, in regular movies, there's a setup. Maybe it's intriguing, maybe it's not. But then there's a little bit of world building and all that. And then your interest sort of dwindles, but it's usually chugging along nicely. And then you ramp up, ramp up, and then you hit the climax where your interest is at its peak. Everything's wild. And then you have that nice little wind down to end the movie. Exactly. Earthsea doesn't really do this. It's very similar to what the sort of form that I was just mentioning about in the books, which is one of the things that I think is a nice aspect is that it captures that. Things in this film, they just kind of flow by. I was saying about the characters just kind of going through the motions without the emotion. This film is just a it's a nice little rise and then a lull. And a little rise again and then a little lull. There's no big peaks at all. The problem I have with that is at least... The thing with the thing is, is it sounds like the Earthsea books were interesting. Yes, very so. This movie is not. No. Um, Like, I'm not trying to rag on the movie too much because it's a fine movie. I was going to say, this was nominated for the Japanese equivalent of the Raspberry Awards, and I'm like... I can, I'm sure I could find something that came out in 2006 that was way worse than this. Yeah, I'm, I'm like... 100% confident that was pure reactionary crap. <laughs> you don't need to pay attention to that. Um, but yeah, it goes into this weird... It goes into the flow that Goro Miyazaki really seemed to want, which was a slight uptick, but like, but it was always mellow. It was always a very mellow, chilled out. Like, even his protagonists uh, was super, like, softly spoken, relaxed. Everyone was always a little bit hesitant, which kind of reflects Goro real life because he was always super uncomfortable with the whole prospects. But um, 
And I think that, that the Goro actually does a very good job of capturing that feeling, of capturing that sort of style of filmmaking. The problem with it, I find, is that the story is very much at odds with it. The story is written as if it's your standard fantasy adventure story about young man runs away from home, goes off on adventures with an old wise teacher, and gets involved with fighting an evil wizard in order to save the girl. That is not the that is not the tone or the style he elects to use. His like I remember like literally staring at this in the uh, while we were while I was watching the movie with Jay. Uh, I literally was looking so confused at how they did the climax because Goro would break a, a chase scene, something Miyazaki is famous for. Like he is probably one of the best in the business at them. From Castle Cagliostro to Spirited Away, the man is known for his, I mean, him and his various key animators, known for a consistent sense of pace and speed. And definitely does feel, because Goro does not come from, say, a TV animation background, considering Hayao Miyazaki did everything from in-between animating to key animating to storyboarding, everything you could physically imagine doing in animation, Goro is an architect. He's not used to moving pictures. Also, I googled 2006 anime films and it came up with Happy Feet, Cars, and Ice Age The Meltdown. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd probably watch Earth Seas over one of those. Also, Garfield 2. Oh, yeah. You're gonna watch Earth Seas over Garfield 2. <laughs> I don't know. I did watch Garfield 2 quite a lot when I was little. Yeah, the scene in Garfield 2 where uh, Garfield just morphs into sort of like a a weird being and then creates his own universe as, as, as John is yelling his name. I'll, I'll what about the hijinks of when he when he gets like body swapped with or like switcherooed with his, I don't know, his cousin or something, which is his doppelganger and then just lives the fat cat life? And then they have sex. Oh, was I watching the Japanese version? Yeah, That explains were. that. Yeah, are we still talking about? Are we talking about? Are we still talking about Garfield? <laughs> we're talking about. We're talking about uh, the Japanese version of Garfield Two, where incest is promoted. Uh, Garfield right, to son. Much to Jay's annoyance, let's bring it back to Earth. I have nothing to say about this fucking film. That's why I'm making fucking Garfield incest jokes. I've become every other podcast on the internet. I have thrown my notes to the fucking wind because what the fuck is this? weird sort of nothing sort of fantasy film where a boy hits a blunt sword against a weird androgynous goo man. Who is voiced by Willem Dafoe in the dub. Who I couldn't <sighs> It's like, to be fair to the dub cast, they actually do it uh, for the most part an alright job. This has Timothy Dalton and Willem Dafoe in it. I, I just... <laughs> Mostly. I know that some of the the female voice actors weren't directed as well. Like No, they were not. My my sense on the dub acting in this film is uh, everyone just sounds really fucking bored. There's no emotion behind their acting. Here's the thing. Dalton gives sort of like a quite solemn performance to Sparrowhawk, which I'm sort of kind of into, but a lot of it, it does sound like... Ah, uh, yes, I'll, I'll do this for a little bit. Uh, yes, very good, very good. Aaron, eat your onion and cheese on a piece of plain bread. It's good for you. Okay. This, I thought, was a problem. I thought this was a problem when I first watched it as well. Well, I think the problem was the fact they didn't cast the right Bond actor. Aaron, you see, the thing about women is you just gotta give them a good slap across the bottom, and th that way they'll, they'll pay attention to you. Oh, you see that that weird sort of sort of uh, goo monster? Oh, I've had I had my encounters with that. You, you want a weird goo monster? You 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 uh, you you visit a woman when she's on the rag. Am I correct? Ha <laughs> ha! It's funny because I'm I don't care for the other the other gender. <laughs> I'm Jed now. 
<laughs> Thank you, Mr. Connery. Thank you. We appreciate that input. I was in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen two years before this movie more. came out. <laughs> <laughs> that was my final performance. I missed out on Tales of Bursi. Perhaps I would have done it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fuck. I identify with Gora Miyazaki because much like him, I'm done with my existence. Okay, yes. <laughs> okay, right. I remembered where my point was going. I thought the weird voice acting was a problem. <laughs> yes, I agree. Sorry. <laughs> Connery's fucked me up. I think that most of the voice acting in the dub, at least, while while it's competent, it, it's just kind of boring. Like Timothy Dalton, like he does a decent job. Let me tell you something about boring. Seeing the same woman every single day. Am I correct, fellows? Mr. Connery, I will shoot you. <laughs> Not before I shoot myself, dear Gabriel. I am so fucking done. I am so mentally spent at the prospect of spending another twenty-five minutes of talking about this fucking film that I don't even hate. Now, the highlight of the dubcast, in my opinion, is Willem Dafoe, who does a very good sort of slow, creepy, whispery... Yeah, yeah it's not really his usual sort of over-the-top theatrical kind of deal. It's very it's very underperformed, which is why I didn't immediately... Usually, I'm the worst person to watch anime with, because I'll be like, oh, hi, Steve Bloom. Oh, hi, Yuri Lowenfall. Hi, Daisuke Ueno, because I can just recognize voices very easily. This time, he got me. He's, he's a brilliant voice actor. I had that hand in my ears. He does a very good job in this movie and is absolutely the highlight of the cast. He kind of loses it towards the end, in my opinion. I think that was more challenges of what he was given. But yeah, I because he had to change his voice given the circumstance because he was supposed to act desperate, which doesn't work well with a creepy whisper voice. No, it really doesn't. Um, but going back to what I was saying earlier, I thought it was a problem and whatnot earlier. When I looked at how Goro does seems to do films and his personality and how he seems to nurture his plots. It actually seems to be a feature, not a bug. Yeah, all of um, his all of his films I've noticed have a sort of downbeat reserved quality. Yeah. Um and again, for a brightly colored, seemingly bombastic sort of art and yeah, the energy is difficult for that to actually synergize well. It's, yes. th it's difficult to combine a very somber, slow paced, meditative tone and style with very bright colors and a story that is evidently written almost to be geared towards more of a fantasy adventure style. Though I do think yeah. a lot of this is lifted up by the score by uh, Tamiya Tereshima which despite the music being used in weird places, I put that down to poor directing rather than more poor scoring, I would say the score is a lot more sinister than the standard Joe Hisashi scores that have been used in the past. It's, it's different. It's not just another, uh, fuck it, put some whimsy here, fuck it, put, the, put some, put some like, this happiness here, here's a, here's a chase scene, fuck it, give me my yen. I mean, you say that, I have literally nothing to say about the music because I can't remember any of the music. I remember some of the music. It was it was solid music. The problem was, it's as Jay alluded to, it wasn't just the music, though. I literally could see it with everything. Every shot wasn't used quite correctly. The editing was... The timing for each piece of editing was ever so slightly off. Yeah, it was off. just off. Yeah, so for example, there'd be singles um, or like 
still shots um, of a character, but they'd hold for a little too long. Like, it would end, it'd end up in the creepy territory. Like, you're going to stay like that for a while? Really? Okay, sure. Uh, and... It, like the same thing would happen in the chases. Like toward the end of the film, the bad guy has kept, uh, kidnapped the the female damsel in distress, and the protagonist is chasing after her. But it's weirdly slow. Yes, there's <laughs> no. This is urgency is something this movie struggles with, especially. It's low stakes, and I do appreciate that, considering the past couple of Ghibli films at this point had been very sort of the world is ending, considering we had Princess Mononoke, we'd have uh, Spirited Away, and we'd had Howl's Moving Castle, where stakes are significantly higher. Wait, hadn't Kiki's delivery service been done yet? No, it had, yeah, 1989, dude. Yeah, so so to be honest with you, they should, well, at least some of the animators and editors would have known, at least to some degree. The thing I see about this film is that in terms of the, Gip- the heritage of Ghibli films that it is following in, this film seems to be made more in the style of those downbeat slice-of-life stories like Kiki's Delivery Service or Only Yesterday. But with slavery! Yes, the difference is the material it has is more geared towards something like Laputa or Nausicaa or Princess Mononoke, a more fast-paced, adventure-driven movie. Or Offering the Invisibles, another hit film from 2006 that Google has brought up for me. I could just keep going. The problem is that those two divergent styles don't tend to mash, don't seem to mash very well together into one consistent product. It it just feels extremely lopsided. The other problem is that a lot of the animators, as I was going through it, going through the list of people who worked on the movie, they've worked, they worked on a lot of Ghibli stuff. Yeah. Ghibli Ghibli's very notorious for keeping its staff on as permanent staff in an industry where that uses freelance a lot of the time. So a lot of the people working on this film, drawing it, have had experience drawing some of the arguably greatest animated films ever made. Absolutely. Like the thing that the thing that shows in every aspect of the film at some point or another is the people behind it were clearly talented. Uh, the problem is how that film was put together. Yes. And this is where we are giving you the floor, my friend, because you have dropped a couple of bombshells on us about the sheer nightmarish sort of almost petricidal vitriol that was behind all of this film. I did my reading, but I think Vic's gone a lot deeper than I did on this. So, uh, like, at first, I just want to conclude the whole plot. It's like opinions of the film stuff, which is basically, it seems, well, Gabe put it best in our pre-talks, which was, it's kind of like the a jigsaw puzzle for the Mona Lisa, but somebody's pulled out the scissors and snipping it up and trying to put it. They've stuck it together in all the wrong places. So it's like, yes, there is a really, really good, beautiful film in there. The direction behind the film wasn't strong enough for all of those pieces to be slotted in together. There is a very good quote that I that stuck out to me um, from a completely different era um, of Quentin Tarantino talking to Terry Gilliam about directing, directing films. And Julian turns around and says, it, your job as director is not to make the film. Your job as director is to tell people how to make your film for you. And I don't think that Goro was able to do that in his first directorial role very well. Yeah, I was going to say, not nearly enough feet. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. It no, needs, needs yeah, to be at I least don't even remember shots. seeing even a pair of bare feet. No. But the point is, is that you can have all of these fantastic, incredible artistic creators working on this project, but if the project isn't being directed properly, 
then that energy is just going to go to loads of weird places and the end product just isn't going to gel together very well. And I think that's ultimately what this movie suffers from. Yeah. The, the, the individual components can all work very well, but put together, uh, not so much. It, yeah. it kind of falls quite it flat. It kind of brings in what we were saying earlier with the fact that Goro's style, at least the style that seems to have been developing, is something more reserved and calm. Something that leads leans more toward art house projects than it does big AAA blockbusters. Yes, it's not like a lot of Hayao Miyazaki's films can be very bombastic. This is not that in any way. And I think that has at least in part impacted its reception in that it's very, very different from the standard Ghibli output at that time. Yes. Very, very different from Hayao Miyazaki's output until that time. And I think the association of Goro with his father's legacy is kind of the, the problem starts there. And this is where the pre-production issues come in. So we're going to go all the way back to Goro's childhood, just so that way... Th- I'm sure it was very happy and carefree, right? Yeah, yeah, he must have had a great relationship with his dad. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to make any comments <laughs> about that part. I'm just going to say... Uh, Your Honor, my, my client has has uh, no, 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 no obligation to answer that question. Um... What I will say is that during his youth, it is said that Goro made peace with the idea that despite the fact that he loved drawing and animating stuff, he would never be able to live up to the legend of his father. So he decided against going um, going into animation and he actually went and studied uh, architecture. Uh, landscaping. Yeah, architecture and landscaping. And he turns out to be quite good at it. Yeah, he's um, very good. He designed the Ghibli Museum. Worked, yes. on, worked on part on that and was director for a few years. Yes, um, he was director of the Ghibli Museum for a few years. He designed it. In fact, the Ghibli Museum is still considered an important stopping point for every Ghibli fan to go to because it is very well designed. He did a fantastic bang-up job on that. No, weirdly, in the architecture plans, they did have to take out a statue of Hayao Miyazaki stabbing a cat. Uh, that wouldn't be very good for the Ghibli image. I wonder why that was there. Anyway, moving on. Uh, Hayo is a very versatile guy. Uh, what can I say? He key, key animates, he does storyboards, he writes scripts, he kills cats, he does the whole shebangabang. But uh, basically, it wasn't actually Hayao Miyazaki himself that actually tried to bring Goro in. It was one of the actual members of staff. It was, I believe it was Suzuki, Toshio Suzuki. Yep, famed anime producer. They actually saw, they took a shine to him. They thought he was a really lovely, and they thought he had talent. In the pre-production stages when Goro was working on his art, they asked other sort of famous anime directors, including people like Hideki Anno, to come in and look at Oh my god, that would have been interesting to see. That would have been a fantastic fantastic interaction, but they praised Goro's artwork. The very famous um, poster that we see of the dragon standing above the little girl, or like, little girl, little boy, small figure, that was done by Goro. And yeah. that was one of the things that made Hayao turn around and go, oh yeah, Goro could do this film, sure. Well, not kind of. Kind so, of. Kind of. So he actually wasn't brought on to Tales of Earthseas as a director. Initially, he was just brought on as a consultant. Okay. And then he was uh, pitched to be, I think it was either pitched or he was made a storyboarder. But then during the development at some point, Goro was offered offered the position. I believe that was due and to Hiao once again trying to retire. And as Anakin said in the prequels, this is where the fun begins. Because 
<laughs> this is when everything went crazy. Excellent. Please tell us. <laughs> because... <laughs> Sorry, it's really ridiculous. So... Hayao Miyazaki was firmly against this position. Like, he did not think Goro was good enough to be a director, right? This is anti-nepotism at its peak. Um, And you'll hear why later. Because, hear why next, actually. Because during production, they did not speak. Despite the fact that Hayao was technically supposed to be supervising, they did not speak, apparently apart from one time where Hayao tried chastising his son for not working on the the movie enough. And that was apparently one of the very few interactions they had during the whole thing. Like, it was just basically, why aren't you working on Tales of Earthsea? Just like, I am, motherfucker! This is what I'm doing with my life, bro. Why are you consuming oxygen when you're supposed to be drawing the movie? Why are you enjoying yourself when you're supposed to be doing the movie? That is kind of basically what was going on. Thank and you, Brooklyn Miyazaki-san. Yeah. Hey! And at one point... I'm moving in this general direction. The direction away from my son. <laughs> and at one point, Hayao tried to organize an animator strike against the fucking film just to make Tales of Earthsea miss its deadlines. That was supposedly the primary reason. Now, Hayao Miyazaki has a, has a history of supporting labor rights in Japan. But this is the shittiest thing I've ever fucking heard. And did you know this podcast is sponsored by Hayao Miyazaki and Gendo Ikari's new parenting guide? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we finally got our first sponsorship, boys. Uh, That's why we did this whole episode. <laughs> Use the code Garugamesh to get 10% off your order for your child caning lessons as well. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Basically, Hayao was a tier cunt. Like, this is amazing, amazing levels of cunt. Who does that to their own son? Like, even, even, fuck, fuck your son. Just another person trying to do their job. Because here's the thing it would be different if, say, this was like a, a sweatshop animation production, but Ghibli has, in terms of anime, which, as we've covered many times in the podcast, a very problematic industry for labor violations and rights of workers is pretty good in terms of having salaried staff. If there's one studio that it, that didn't fucking need it, it was Studio Ghibli. And the fact that this, this insurrection of, of sorts happened just out of spite was... God, that's just fucking repulsive. I love how in this month we'll just be peeling back the, oh, that's the nice, funny, I hate anime man who makes all the Ghibli films into just... Wow, this this man is sort of a sociopath. Yeah, a little bit. I'm kind of glad I didn't grow up with Ghibli films because I can now appreciate them as art, but I can also separate them from their auteur. Yeah. 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 It feels real good. It's, uh, like, Miyazaki is a phenomenal artist. I don't think anyone would not, would deny that as a person. Or maybe a mama Oshi, but that's another episode. As, as a father, definitely not. An interesting thing, though, that despite all of these attempts to set the movie back by... Hayao Miyazaki. The movie finished on time. It finished in half the time as Hayao Miyazaki's previous two films. I was going to say that, like, that itself, considering Goro did not have the animation industry experience, is an achievement of itself. That he got a film on time made in eight months, which I know anime films are usually known for a very quick turnaround. That still sounds like a nightmarish yeah. production by all accounts. Uh, again, like, no matter how much you criticize the film, this was competently made. Not, yeah. not, not brilliantly made, but competently. Like, as much as I make jokes 
I did enjoy bits of this film. I think the, the 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 theme, one of the themes I could sort of grasp from the various bits of hay falling off this massive needle stack was fuck my dad. Well, there's there's that, but it's also fuck my dad, I'm going to get my new dad who's Timothy Dalton. And uh <laughs> there's the bit about sort of being concerned about death and consequences. Like there are nuggets of this film where like I kind of jived with the climax. Granted it wasn't earned at all. Uh, but the sort of, you know, when he pulls out the sword and the scabbard, that's still pretty cool. And there are, like, bits of nice fight key animation. And my favorite part is Will, 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 Will and Defoe just goes full on, No, 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 you have lost! And just goes on full sort of Palpatine. Yeah. It is actually quite beautiful to watch. Yeah. It's amazing, because I thought I'd seen all the ham that Willem Dafoe could produce in the original Spider-Man movie. But no, it turns out there was a slice of cheese that I was missing out on. So I've brought that up before. There's there's a scene where they're all tending tending the farm and some very horrifically realistic anime blisters are rendered. And then they're all like, you have to, Aaron, you have to eat a good meal to keep keep your strength up. Here's this piece of raw bread with with a whole slice of onion and a bit of cheese on it. It's a delicacy in these parts. I'll be I'll honest, be honest that threw me as well, <laughs> but it seems to go in with this weird reserved vibe that Goro just has. Yeah. He he had it with the dad. Like, I was so weirded out by the fact that everyone was facing death with this weird sort of, if it happens, it happens, I guess. Or like, whatever. Like, the da- the king was on the fucking, like, wall. Like, <laughs> like, chained up. And he was like, his wife was told to push him off. And then she was vaguely emotional. He was like, Shit's happening, but fuck it. It's like, whatever. It's like, somebody could at least swear or just be like, nah, I don't want to die. Something. Like, no, everyone just takes it. I was like, I've had a pretty decent life. I have a shy bitch. I have a, I have a donkey, an ash, if you will. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to end things, frankly. Very good. That's lovely. Like, it, it weirded me out because it reminded me of Man of Steel. Like, Scott, uh, Zack Snyder's Man of Steel, where everyone takes breath uh, death like a light breeze. <laughs> yes, where all of the characters are very flat and emotionless and just kind of doing things throughout the movie because that's what they're supposed to do in the script. Yeah, the bit where Aaron, Aaron broke the demon's neck, that was, that, that was hardcore and made me feel powerful. Yeah. Uh... Oh, wait, there was one dramatic moment where that girl unlocked the Sharon Garden and then the dragon popped out of nowhere. <laughs> I wish I was joking. There's, I am at best 20% joking. No, there's something very interesting about that, actually, because... Is there? There is. And ties back to the thing I was talking about earlier with how there's a very particular scene in the climax of Earthsea that is seen very much as a deus ex machina kind of thing that just comes out of fucking nowhere, fixes the plot um, with absolutely no build-up or explanation. Um, and this particular thing is one of the big characters turning into a fucking dragon. And it is foreshadowed with exactly one line. line of dialogue that doesn't even indicate what the thing is foreshadowing is. That character and that dragon are taken from the fourth book of Earthsea, and it's the central focus of that book. And there's lots of explanation about why this is why that happens. But this result returns back to the problem of this not this film just not being put together very well. Because again, it's cherry picking elements from a book, chucking them into a big pot without consideration for how it's all gonna go together, and then just chucking it into a bowl. 
there's there's no consideration for how these things are actually going to flow in tandem and even logically Goro just decided to cherry pick things he liked or things that are famous and important chuck it on a script and then try and make a film out of it and it really doesn't work uh, in fairness to Goro, he did read these books as a kid. He does have a personal connection to the material, which I believe is part of the reason he was chosen to help direct it. Again, there's a lot of good you can say about Goro in this movie and that this is his first job in the anime industry and he made a movie. On time! On time, and it's watchable. That's amazing, yeah. I don't I don't regret watching this movie because it's it, there's lots of interesting things in it. I'm 50-50 on that, but sure, go ahead. But I like I I wouldn't say to someone, don't watch this movie, it's bad. I would say to someone, give it a shot. Why not? Uh, you, you might find something in it that you like. And I think that's that'll that'll wrap us up nice and neatly, considering Yeah, I don't have a ton more to say other than um I do want to do an episode at some point on our second Ghibli June or just Miyazaki month or whatever the hell we're gonna call it, because we're already like a week behind at yeah. this point. I love Adobe Premiere, it loves me back. Yeah. Um, but I wanted I want to watch Up on Poppy Hill now because that I, I've heard that's his best film and I, I would agree that it is. I would be extremely interested in seeing. I wanted. I hope the next Goro Miyazaki film, if he is still directing, is uh, is solid. Is. Funnily enough, after the Earthsea's flop, I think he had uh, the option to go back to architecture and thing, uh, architecture and. Uh, go- landscaping and he actually opted to stay in the animation industry like that was an actual choice he was brave call fucking brave call i mean miyazaki famously said initially considering they were they were like fucking fighting like rabid dogs throughout most of this production like you know my son has not become an adult yet or something along those lines despite gora being 50 or something and Apparently, he later saw the film and was like, "Yeah, it's all right, fair enough. Maybe, maybe it should have been." Well, so initially, apparently, when he watched it, he thought that the pacing was bad, which because he apparently left to have a cigarette or something. Which that's a very fair criticism. The pacing is very weird in this uh, this movie. But later on, he said that the movie was honestly made, so it was good. So if (laughs) from what I take from that statement, it seems to be more along the lines of. I don't think you made a good movie, but I respect the work that you put into this, and I see there is something of value in having this film. Yeah, I I 100% agree with that reading. Yeah, that's exactly how I read it as well. Yeah, there's in Earthsea's not great. It's not the worst Ghibli film, but that's your wig. Um, and I don't really think it's as bad as a lot of people give it credit for. Here's the horrible part, though. Understanding a bit more about Goro now, because I've done the fucking research, I realize we actually have really lost out on a really great art house, potentially an art house filmmaker. Maybe if Goro decides to do a movie that is not geared towards kids and decides to do something that plays very much to his strengths we'll get a good piece out of him someday poppy hill is something that's much closer to that but that's something that we can see if well i actually am interested in seeing another goro miyazaki movie i think if anything at least it will be interesting goro miyazaki's berserk 2024 i'd watch it I'd fucking watch it. That would be <laughs> you know fascinating. What? I'd watch that as well. Like some, yeah, I think it'd work. It would be interesting. It's just gut stabbing this old man that looks like a legally distinct version of Hayao Miyazaki every episode. Yes. <sighs> Goro Miyazaki directs a new version of Ghost in the Shell. That might actually work. Yeah, considering where that franchise fucking is, I'd fucking take it. Exactly. Retire, Kamiyami. You've had your chance. Now fuck off. And with that, 
I think maybe we should fuck off too. Yes! This isn't the last we're going to hear about Goro, so... That's fair enough. Uh, the next episode will be on a significantly better film where we're heading back to... Heading back to Japan's golden age, the 1980s, where we will be covering uh, My Neighbor Totoro. So, until then, remember to rate and review us on every podcasting app you can think of. Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music. Uh, leave us a nice review telling us you, you love us very much. I had to leave a review on a friend's iPhone... In order to get the stats up, uh, I'll do it again. I have no shame. I respect that. I respect the honesty of your shame, yeah. not the shame itself. Just, you know, steal your girlfriend's iPod, steal your steal your dad's phone, you know, uh, send this podcast to your grandma. Maybe maybe they'll like hey, it. We all got to do our promo somehow. That, that's right. So with that being said, I love sushi. I love Japan. And I love you all for staying a fan. Garugamash. Garugamash. Too late to give you back My receipt is gone And I'm starting to look back at everything that's going wrong Know how I used to long To hold you in my hand Such a shame it took six weeks shipping directly from Japan not gonna lie, you were kawaii, but now your paint job's chipped away. Real Moe Blues, my plastic wife. Your shining gloss once put my family in strife. For what I owe to you, I swear I could die. Body pillows I left hanging dry Oh darling, we're a mess Listening to Garuga Mess